Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. You may have noticed as you came in this morning uh, a little bit of a different setup with the sanctuary. And if this is one of your first times, then you've noticed nothing different, and that is okay. Uh, Like any new home that you move into, uh, you know that the way you set up the furniture the first time uh, will look very different as the weeks, the months, and the years proceed of like, okay, let's move it over here and let's try this and, and let's try that. Uh, and so the, the shift that we have done, uh, especially here in our sanctuary, I can assure you is not about uh, feng shui. It's not about, okay, well, this actually looks more beautiful, though I think it is. Uh, I, our pragmatics was not our reasoning for this. When we first moved in, pragmatics were very much so driving the altar uh, backed up against the stage and the chairs all facing in a certain way. Although even in this new arrangement, we've only dropped four chairs but as I've been, uh, I've been thinking about this space for some time, as have a few others, and this week, uh, of all weeks, felt like the week to make this shift, because how we embody any space deeply matters, because space matters. It has the ability to communicate something good, true, and beautiful about God, about us, and about the world. And if you entered in through the front doors this morning, depending on whether someone was in your eyesight or not, and maybe you didn't have a chance to look, and so as you leave today, I'll invite you just to turn and just to look. One of the things that you'll notice that your eyes are immediately drawn to the table. It stands, it feels, at least maybe just to me, that more than our previous setup, it feels like it stands at the center And there is, you'll even notice as you come in, there's a gentle expansiveness. And friends, this was all very intentional. One of the first things I read about All Souls when I was applying was that we were a Eucharistically centered church. I went back just to make sure I was remembering that correctly, and sure enough, there it is in the packet. And I was thankful for this because what it means and what it still means and what it has always meant is that the table, the Eucharist table, the communion table, is at the center of our life together. The sanctuary is a space that embodies not only our life together as a community, but I would argue our place in the world as followers of Jesus. We stand at this table in the midst of a particular place. We call it Charlottesville. We call it home. This table is at the center of a lot of things. And when you enter into worship on a week like this, and we've had, it feels like, quite a bit of weeks like this, where it just feels like the volatility and the hatred and the weight of the world, you can just feel it. And this table stands at the center. It stands at the center of the altar. I don't know where, what kind of church tradition you grew up in, if you grew up in one, but altar can mean a lot of different things. And what I mean by altar this morning, friends, is the world. The world that groans, the world that is out of words for prayer. 
The table is the center of the altar and the altar is the boundary of the table. This is the table. And the world in which we inhabit, in which we live, the stories in which we walk into is the altar. As some have called it, it's the liturgy after the liturgy. It's the prayer after the prayers. It's the words after the words. It's the place of the world's deepest groaning. Not that we escape that groaning when we enter into this place. We bring it with us. We have to as the people of God. Because we come to a table, not of a body unbroken, of blood that still pumps in the veins, but of a body that is broken, a blood that is poured out. Centered on that table is a cross. A cross that is much more than just a symbol. It is the revelation, it is the apocalypse of God's love. Of a self-giving love. Of a love that is not outside the pain, but is in the midst of it. And it is a reminder that the one who comes, the one whose table this is, was welcomed by death, would leave this world the first time through death, for death had thought it had won. But in death's consumption of this one, whose table this is, death comes to find out it has been defeated. This is what it means to be salt and light. And you are salt and light. How do I know that you're salt and light? Not because I have access to all of your DMs and your browser history and your private conversations. Even those things wouldn't shake that you are salt and light. And I know this because Christ is salt. And Christ is the light, the light whom the darkness could not overcome. And because Christ is salt and because Christ is light, you too are salt and light. And so therefore, we are called to keep the Eucharist as the core moment of our week. It is the central axis on which all of our days and moments and times as the people of God on this side of new creation revolves. Because this participation in Christ and with one another can keep us going in a world that is volatile and heavy. Any attempt, as I wrote this week to you in the pastoral words I've made, to speak about what we're collectively watching unfold, I can't make it through. Even sitting around the fire Friday night with a few friends, we do this every season. I have a friend who raises cattle, and so every time a new batch makes its way to its butcher and comes back, we celebrate with wine and with cooking meat over an open fire. And of course, like it feels like every conversation, the conversation begin to make its way into what we're watching unfold in Gaza and in Israel. And even there, I can't with any authority and will not speak to the geopolitics, the history of it. But as I said, I know death, I know suffering, and I know displacement. And I know that these are the things that bring grief to the heart of God, a God who grieves. The God who became human on the same soil now soaked with the blood of the innocent once again. In Matthew 26, 
We're giving the account of the Garden of Gethsemane, about 47 miles from our headlines today. Jesus walks out, having just given to his friends what we'll call communion, what we'll call the Eucharist. He goes out into a garden. And I've said this before, the dinner is not happy clappy. This is not a good dinner party. It's a dinner party that John tells us is riddled. Jesus, John tells us Jesus himself is anxious sitting at the table. The disciples are arguing over who's the greatest. Peter's been delegated to the kids' table. And Jesus gives to his disciples two simple commands. Do you remember what they are? What does he tell them to do in the garden? Tells them to stay awake, but then to do what? To keep watch and to pray. Keep watch and pray. Salt, light. There's a service of evening prayer in the Book of Common Prayer called the prayer called Compline, and there's a prayer in there. Here are the words. Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work, who watch or weep this night. Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night. And give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ. Give rest to the weary. Bless the dying. Soothe the suffering. Pity the afflicted. Shield the joyous. And all for your love's sake. We keep watch and we pray. Because God keeps watch and prays. Keep watch and pray, salt and light. And so what does it mean to watch and pray? I don't know if any of you have felt this. I I have a feeling you probably have, and I'll confess I have too. It hasn't just been some of my friends on Facebook. That after a moment of national, international tragedy, they ask the question, what good are your thoughts and prayers? Anybody else ask that question, maybe just not publicly? What good are thoughts and prayers? I believe prayer changes things. That's another sermon for another time. We're told even this morning that the Holy Spirit, Jesus, Jesus' spirit prays for us. We pray to Jesus. Jesus prays for us. We are Jesus' intercession for this world. We are Jesus' human in flesh intercession for this world. That's what's behind someone like Dr. King, who from a jail in Birmingham will write to all the white clergy and go, thanks for your prayers. But we need you to do something too. Because we are Jesus' intercession for this world. This space, this space, the sanctuary, this table, is space for us to keep watch and pray. Two movements, two movements that are one, two spaces that are one, you cannot separate them really. 
This past week in a conversation, I was sitting in with Theological Horizons. They were talking with one of their faith and work lunches. I'm going to bring this up a couple times. We're having a conversation with a hospice nurse, or a hospice, excuse me, a a hospice chaplain. And she quoted my favorite line from one of C.S. Lewis's essay. It's been a long time. I'm severely under quote, like under my quota of pastors having to quote C.S. Lewis. So I have a little bit of catching up to do. I don't think I've quoted him once this year and Here we are in October, but this is my favorite line of his. He says, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And perhaps like the religious leader, we look to Jesus and go, but who is my neighbor? To which I think Jesus would lovingly go, who's not your neighbor? Especially in a moment of global internet connectedness, the world, which has always been our neighbor, has become our neighbor. This table is at the center of the altar and the altar is the boundary of the table. So what do we do? There is a lot. But my call in all of this, there's a lot I wish I could do. There's a lot, if I'm being honest, I wish I could pop this collar off and tell you what to do. But my call, my vocation in all of this is to call us to watch and to pray. Andy Squires is a musician. Um, He's a poet. He's a writer. I found him in the midst of the pandemic, and he was just speaking with both a saltiness and a hope like few people were. Has an incredible story that I won't retell here. But he posted this on Instagram of all places on September 16th. Listen to this. I think it applies as much then as it does now. He says, quote, these are not unprecedented times. Is anybody tired of hearing unprecedented, by the way? It's like, these are unprecedented. Okay, I think it's becoming a precedent. These are not unprecedented times. The story of humanity and creation has always been this. Upheaval is the rule, and stability is the exception. Tumult is nothing new. Unrest is an ancient dynamic. The times have always been changing, but it's not difficult to know what we should do. Our work remains what it has always been, to be quick to listen, to be very slow to speak, to be very slow to get angry, to rejoice when various trials come. We have God's permission for this. The world is noisy with prophets of doom because fear sells. Don't forget that. Fear sells. Of course, trite optimism sells too, but we are not optimists either. We are carriers of a tremendous fearlessness that empowers us to be people of no reputation. See why I like him? We have been set free from having to give the world our opinions. We can give whatever little world we inhabit the wisdom of God as we are conformed into Christ's meek image. Trusting Christ in all things is what we do. 
and trusting Christ looks like this. We plant sequoias instead of building underground bunkers. We plant sequoias instead of building underground bunkers. That was two years ago. Planting sequoias. Watch, pray, salt, light, eat, drink. Beloved, this is the mystery of faith we enter into here in order to take with us into the world. A sturdy and eternal kind of love. A love that is revealed in the cross as a love that is self-giving, self-emptying, and self-sacrificing. A love that is revealed in the resurrection as a love that will not let death have the last word. And a love that is revealed in the ascension as a love that will not rest until all have tasted and seen. In Matthew, a chapter or so before the garden scene, Jesus is gathered once again in Bethany with his friends. I've said this before. It's, Bethany is the place where Jesus would often retreat to, not just the mountain, but to Bethany to be with his friends. And that day, Mary does something that we're at least told she had never done before. She comes into the room with a bottle of perfume. She breaks it, anoints his feet with her hair. We'd all be weirded out today if that happened. But in that day, it was incredibly scandalous. Well, that's what some people have called it. I think a better word for it is courageous. Because Mary is constantly moving into spaces that people said she did not belong in. And so she begins at Jesus' feet. In the past, Jesus has been anointed before, but he had been anointed on his head. And anointing someone on the head is what you do for kings. But to anoint someone on the feet is what you do in burial rites. And she anoints his feet with nard. If you're an office fan, not nard dog. Okay, a few of you, good but anoints his feet with nard. It's an oil that is worth roughly a year's wage. It's made from flowers at the top of the Himalaya mountains, about 45,000 feet up. This is what she pours over the feet of Christ. It's what she wipes with her hair. And John tells us, it's an easy detail to overlook in John's account that the house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It brings to mind the description in Revelation the prayers of the saints, like incense changing the environment of heaven. The house is filled with fragrance. Remember, she's not anointing the head. This is not fragrance of anointing a king. It's the fragrance of grief. It's the fragrance of knowing the loss that is coming. I don't know how, but Mary knew something. And like her friend Jesus, she was well acquainted with grief. This account comes on the back end of Lazarus' resurrection. But she was also acquainted with hope in the flesh. 
with resurrection, with God. Mary knew in her precious bones what it was to taste water in the desert. She knew what it was to have a mouth filled with laughter, her tongue with shouts of joy, because she had known what it was to sow with tears, to go out weeping in order to meet Jesus along the way. She knew what it was to invite Jesus to the place of greatest loss. And in that place to reap songs of joy, to come again with joy, shouldering her sheave, salt and light, watch and pray, eat and drink. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Kingdom without end. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.